Father, I pray that you, again, bless your word as we go into this study, that you would help us to understand the things that you have shared with us through your word, through the apostles, through Jesus. And Lord, I just thank you that, that you would open this up to us and it would be so glorious. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been talking about, I guess since um, maybe uh, July of last year, the new covenant. We have been going through it methodically about what is the new covenant? What has God established? How do we operate? How do we walk in the new covenant? What are the works of the new covenant? What is the blood of the new covenant? And so last week we started this subject, the enemies of the new covenant. And so we're going to continue this for the next few weeks. And I'm going to start this morning in Romans chapter 8. And we're going to move into eventually the book of Hebrews. Um, but we understand, as you're turning there, that Paul said that there are enemies of the cross of Jesus. And so that's what we're talking about. Who are these enemies of the cross of Jesus? Jude says that they sneak in unaware. And they are seeking to overthrow the faith of people. And so it's, it's, it's very important that the enemies are not necessarily the people that are outside of the church. They, they find their way into the church. They sneak in. They begin to operate. They begin to dislodge people from their rest and their faith that is in Jesus Christ. And they're enemies of the cross. They're much like Pharisees. They have a really difficult time leaving the old covenant. They have a difficult time leaving Moses behind and embracing what God has done through Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, phenomenal things happened. Unique things happened. When Jesus came, John 1 says that Moses gave the law, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That's something unique that Jesus brought Moses didn't bring. And so we have to understand. And then the Bible says that with John the Baptist, up till John, the law and the prophets were preached. But since that time, the kingdom of God was preached, the gospel of this kingdom. And so when we come into Romans chapter 8 and understanding the enemies of the new covenant are enemies of the cross. Because the new covenant finds all of its essence in the cross of Jesus Christ. We have to understand some very significant things. Because even Paul, when he was preaching the grace of God, was misunderstood in regards to the fact that when Paul preached grace, there were people who went around and accused Paul that grace was a license to sin. And because Paul was, was accused of that, he had to write in his letters, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But that is how the new covenant can be misunderstood. As a license to sin. And that's what the enemies of the cross do. The enemies of the cross are, are those who say that if you simply live by grace. Or you promote grace. Then you're going to cause people to live in sin. It is a license to sin. And that is the enemy of the cross. Because grace is not going to let you live in sin. Now I want you to understand it this way. We understand that God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Correct? And so when God gave instructions to the people of Israel through Moses, and he said things like, you shall have no other gods before me. And then God said, you shall not kill. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not murder. Has God changed in regards to his new covenant message? 
Are we now, because we're in the new covenant, entitled to have multiple gods? Are we entitled now to live in adultery? Are we entitled now to kill or to steal or to lie or to covet? Absolutely not. God has not changed and God's desires for a holy people have not changed. The difference is this. God's demands in the old covenant, there was no power in the old covenant to accomplish that. But only in the new covenant, in the cross of Jesus, is there the power to actually move in a person's life so that they can live that way. The new covenant, grace, is the only possibility. There is no other possibility. And so he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. These are the two covenants. These are the two covenants. And so there is the law of the spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus. If you come into that law, you are free from the law of sin and death. The only thing that the old covenant can do, the only thing that the law can do is condemn the sinner. It cannot save the sinner. There's no repentance under the law. The soul that sins, it shall die, period. That is it. And the law was to bring us to Christ. I I don't have time to go back through everything. But he says in verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and far sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So the law is not bad. The law is holy. The law is good. The law is righteous. The law was given by God. So the, the, the law, when it would profess no other gods, don't kill, don't murder, don't, you know, or, or lie. And so these things are good. The, there was no problem with the law. The problem was with us. We did not have the strength in our flesh to fulfill that. But that was the demand. And so we didn't do it, and therefore the law judges us and pronounces its condemnation, which is death. But if we're in Christ, there is no condemnation because we've moved out of that law and we've moved into the new covenant, which is beautiful because he says in verse 4 that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. And so this is the beauty of the new covenant and the grace of God is that in this new covenant, now the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled. It is fulfilled by the spirit of God and not by the striving of man's flesh. The best that man could do is to restrain himself from committing something horrific But yet in his heart, he still may long for that. And that's why, listen, grace goes further than the law. Because the law says you shall not commit adultery. And so if you abstain from that act, then you're not breaking the law necessarily. But grace comes along and grace says, listen, you are not to lust in your heart after another person. 
If you do that, you've committed adultery in your heart. Grace goes further than the law. Because it is through the new covenant, through the grace of God and the spirit of God, that the heart of man is changed. Did the old covenant ever promise the people, I will put a new heart in you? I will put a new mind in you? The old covenant never made that promise. The old covenant could not do it. But God made that promise in the new covenant. A new covenant that I will make with you. He prophesied about it in the prophets. That I will put a new heart in you. And a new spirit in you. And it is that heart that we receive in our new birth. That that does not desire to commit adultery. That does not desire to lie. That does not desire to murder. It's that new life. By the spirit of God. Now the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in us. Very, very important we understand it. And so the enemy of the cross is that which professes that grace cannot do it. Grace cannot do it. There has to be the striving of the flesh. I can imagine many saying, might not all this grace, might not all this lead to irresponsibility among Christians? Where they do the very thing Paul counseled them against when he said, We beseech you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Yes, it might. Men can abuse grace. But that is the calculated risk God takes. If he tightened up on grace and introduced all sorts of extra conditions to be fulfilled. Whereas it might prove salutary for some. It would make others despair, perhaps the greater number, for they might feel it was beyond their feeble resources. So God has decided to let grace be grace and to attach no strings to it. If grace does not produce holiness, he has no other way. And so grace demands more than the law. Grace demands an inward desire and an inward holiness as well as outward. Because truly, if your heart is desiring God, then the things outwardly are going to fall into place. Grace is our only teacher that we have. It's the means by which the Holy Spirit teaches. This is in Titus chapter 2. And he says this, if you'll turn quickly there with me. In Titus chapter 2, we understand in verse 11... For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. Grace is our teacher. And what does grace teach us? It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And that's the new covenant. Grace is our teacher. And this is the means by which God is going to do it. Grace also teaches us to look for the rapture of the church, the blessed hope. So grace teaches us beautifully how to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. But grace also teaches us how to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So a person, a believer who is living under the new covenant, living under the grace of God, is not going to be moved by grace to sin, 
But grace is going to teach that believer how to deny ungodliness and how to live soberly and righteously and godly. I don't have time to turn there, but I would encourage you to refer to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He credited everything about his life to the grace of God. And he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, that the grace of God can be given in vain. That grace is extended to all people. But all people do not benefit from it or use it in faith. And therefore, it doesn't have its effect upon their life. But the change in Paul and the conversion of Paul and the life of Paul, he attributed everything to the grace of God. And so the enemy of the cross is the one who says grace is not enough. There must be more. The new covenant is not enough because this is the new covenant of grace. And please remember the definition of grace. It's very important. It's God's divine influence in your life. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the life of God. So Paul magnified the grace of God as the means by which he was what he was. Ephesians chapter 1 says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein we have been made accepted in God. And grace goes on and on and on. The enemies of the cross deny the ability of God through the new covenant to make a person holy and to keep a person. They preach this grace. If we preach this grace, it will become a license for people to sin. But Jesus brought this grace. Jesus brought this new covenant. As the law was given by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus. And Jesus came and preached the kingdom of God. And grace is the gospel of God. And something earth-shattering happened when Jesus came because he brought this with him. In Hebrews chapter 12, if you'll turn there with me, I want you to see this in verse 28. He says, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So how do we serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear? What's going to produce reverence and godly fear in those who want to serve God acceptably? What do you need? Grace. We need to have that grace, that help, that influence of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. In chapter 13, I remind you of this. Verse 20, it says, now the God of peace, he identifies this God as the one who's mighty to raise Jesus from the dead. Jesus is the one who died for us. And so the God of peace through the blood of the everlasting covenant, verse 20 The God of peace through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you perfect in every good work to do his will. It talks about God's ability through the blood of the the everlasting covenant. God has the ability to make you perfect to do his will, to work his will. God has that ability. The enemies of the cross deny God's ability. God cannot do it. 
But not only is God, by the blood, able to make us perfect in every good work to do His will, but working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight. And that working in you is grace. It's God's influence in your life. And so that working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight, God does all of this. So God is the one who makes you, who, who, who perfects you in every good work to do his will. And God is the one who's working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. That's what God does in the life of the believer. <clears throat> That's the work of the new covenant. That is the power of God as he works in us through his grace and through his power. And so I want to come to this now. And we probably won't get through all of this today, but get into some of it today and, and pick it back up again in a couple of weeks. In Hebrews chapter 10, we come to this explanation of this attempt. In Hebrews chapter 10, basically what you're dealing with is the proclamation of a new and living way that we are to come before God. And in Hebrews chapter 10, you also talk about where the author is trying to tell the believers, don't throw your confidence away. So there's, there's something going on in the life of the believers where there is an attempt for them to throw their confidence away and cause them to stumble and cause them to, you know, maybe be cast aside, just like he says in verses 38 and 39. We're to believe to the saving of the soul. And so what that is, is found in verse 26. And he says this, for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking far of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law, and he's about to tell you what this willful sin is. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, this is the sin, of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who is trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted, he's talking about the new covenant here, he has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite to the Spirit of grace. This willful sin is to throw the confidence away that he had in God, that he had in the new covenant, but he comes to a place where he throws that away, which is to trample the Son of God, which is to count the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified. He's not doing this. He's doing it willfully. He's not doing this not understanding what he's doing. But he's coming to this decision willfully. That I'm going to trod the Son of God. I count the blood of the covenant wherewith I was sanctified as unholy and do despite to the spirit of grace. And that willful sin is to come to the conclusion that the new covenant, 
The spirit of grace alone is not able to sanctify me. There are things that I must strive about in myself. And this was the argument even in Acts where they, the, uh, the whole council was together. Say, what should we put the Gentiles under? The Gentiles are being saved. Should we require them to be circumcised? Should we bring them back? What, what should we put them under as far as the Mosaic law? And the decision was we couldn't keep it. So why are we going to put them under it? Let it be of grace that it might be by God. Let it be that. Now, I know that there are things that we do that we're not aware of. There, there are sins that we commit that we are not aware of. But there are sins. We have missed the mark. We have fallen short of what God has wanted for us. It could be a particular attitude. It could be a particular thing. Excuse me. A good many Americans are overweight and so that is a willful sin. We understand that. And sometimes we might eat too much without realizing that we ate too much until after we've eaten too much. And then we're like, oh my gosh, I can't tie my shoes. I think I ate too much. And, and so we realize that we have committed the sin of gluttony. And so there are things that we might do that we're not aware of. But I would say that a good number of sins that we commit as Christians are willful sins. We know what we're doing. We know that we are being enticed. As a matter of fact, in James, if you'll just turn a book over in James chapter 1, if you would see this, he says in verse 14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now, temptation's not a sin, right? Jesus was tempted in every point as we, but he sinned not. So every man is tempted. Every man is tempted. When he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now, if you go further, you're encroaching on sin. You have to know this is happening. You know you're being tempted. You know you're being enticed. And then it says, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. When it is finished, it brings forth death. And so we understand that when sin is occurring in our life, most of the time or much of the time, we know we're being tempted. We know we're being enticed. And we might continue to give in to that temptation or that enticement to where we actually begin to commit a sin. To which we need to repent of and ask God to forgive us for. And turn to God in confession and believe God to wash us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1. So the willful sin of Hebrews chapter 10 is not the fact that there's a believer who has committed a, an act of transgression. The willful sin of Hebrews chapter 10 is for somebody who was sanctified... By the covenant, now considers the covenant, the blood of the covenant, unholy. And unholy means in this context or in this, this Greek word, it means insufficient. This covenant of blood is insufficient to make me like Christ. Therefore, I must 
through the striving of my flesh, help God make me better. This was the whole condition of the, of the letter to the Galatians, which we're going to get into when we understand the enemies of the cross there and how the enemies of the cross in Galatians operated. And so this is what Paul is talking about or the author of Hebrews is talking about. I want you to look at this with me, if you will, in chapter 12 of Hebrews. And I want to begin in verse 22. And it says, you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Now, This is setting apart the situation with Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, and how he sought repentance in verse 17. It says there was no place of repentance. He sought it carefully with tears. It doesn't matter how much you cry, your tears will not take your sins away. But he went to the wrong mountain. Esau went to the mountain of the law. And he wept. And he confessed his sin. But there was no repentance for him there. Because the law can only bring condemnation. But you haven't come to that mountain. You've come to a different mountain. You've come to Mount Zion. The city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. And to the innumerable company of angels. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Which are written in heaven. And to God the judge of all. And to the spirits of just men made perfect. And to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. That's what you come to. I'm coming to Jesus who is the mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling. That speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaks. This is chapter 12. In chapter 10, he's dealing with, it's a pivotal chapter because he's dealing with people who are being tripped up to throw their confidence away. The the Christians in this era are facing hardship. And they are facing persecution. And they are facing exile. Because they're not embracing Moses. And their temptation is that all of this suffering, and all of this persecution, this is Hebrews 10, we'll get into it later. But this is all this persecution. If we just embrace Moses a little bit, then we'll have their favor too. And the author of Hebrews is saying this, you can't do that. You will count the covenant as unholy. You will upset. This is the word despite in Hebrews 10. You do despite to the spirit of grace. You will infuriate, insult the spirit of grace, which is the Holy Spirit. You will tell the Holy Spirit that you cannot sanctify me. I have to strive in my flesh to do it. That would be an enemy of the cross. So he's talking about that in chapter 10. Don't throw your confidence away. 
There's going to be a recompense. Don't throw it away. So he comes to chapter 12 as he's coming to a conclusion. And he's appealing to them as well not to throw this away. So he says in verse 25, see that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they escaped not who refused him that spoke on earth, Moses, how more or much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven? That's Jesus. If, if, if they did not listen to Moses and suffered the wrath of God, then how much more will people suffer God's wrath who do not listen to Jesus? And that's what the author's telling us. You've come to Jesus. You've come to the mediator of the new covenant. You've come to a blood that speaks better than Abel, a blood that speaks mercy and forgiveness. You've come to a covenant that's not going to let you live in sin. You've come to a covenant, which in this covenant, in God's grace, through the spirit of grace, is going to teach you how to live godly and righteously and soberly. The spirit of grace is going to teach you how to deny ungodliness and how to live right. Don't deny that. Don't deny that spirit of grace, which is the only thing that is able to sanctify you. The only one who is able to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. Don't throw that away. Don't throw that confidence away. Which is what the enemies of the cross would be attempting to do. Now he's referring in chapter 12 of verse 25. He's referring to these two voices. He's referring to Moses and he's referring to Jesus. As he comes to the conclusion of Hebrews in chapter 12... We already have the context that is given to us in chapter 1 of Hebrews to know who he's talking about. Because this is the subject of the whole book. The whole book of Hebrews is designed to show us how much better Jesus is than Moses. How much better the blood of Jesus is than the blood of bulls. And how much better the new covenant is than the old covenant. And how much better the priesthood of Jesus is than the priesthood of the Levites. The whole book is to show us how much better Jesus is. And so he begins by talking about the two voices who speak that both need to be honored. But it's so important to hear Jesus. You know, on the mountain of transfiguration, when the disciples are there and, and, and suddenly there appears with Jesus, what was it, Elijah and, and, and Moses that appeared with Jesus? You have the law and the prophets. But when Jesus is there, God from heaven says, hear him. Hear him. Hear Jesus. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Hear him. And he says in chapter 1 of Hebrews, if you'll turn there with me. And Carla, if you'll come and prepare. In Hebrews chapter 1, he says this in verse 2. Or we'll begin in verse 1, just for the fluidness of it. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days 
spoken unto us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Chapter 2. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. Now remember, this is this, this is the beginning. Hebrews chapter 12, he's just reviewing it. Don't refuse him that speaks. Because if they refuse the one that spoke on earth, Moses, and they suffered wrath, how much more wrath do you think they're going to get who refuses to hear the one who speaks from heaven, Jesus? We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And this is going to be the whole theme of the book. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. And so here it is at the beginning of the book. The author is saying, listen, there were two that spoke and both needed to be heard. And it's important that men heard Moses because if they didn't heed what Moses said, great wrath would come. But now in the last days, God's spoken to us by his son. And it is urgent that we hear his son. And it's urgent that we don't neglect these things. For if we do neglect these things, how shall we escape if we neglect the salvation? That Jesus has proclaimed to us. Salvation through his blood. Salvation through the new birth. Which delivers us from the power of sin. Which brings us into right relationship with God. Which teaches us how to live. Godly and holy and righteous and soberly. What more would you want? Other than God to teach you that. But the enemies of the cross don't want that. They they don't want it to be Jesus alone. They don't want it to be, hey, God, by the Holy Spirit, can do this through his grace. And it's important that you hear him and you don't receive his grace in vain, which you could. But if you will receive the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, the new birth, then the Holy Spirit will teach you. And the Holy Spirit will conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. And what do we do if we sin? Well, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that if we're the children of God, he'll chasten us. For what purpose? So that we might be partakers of his holiness. That's what he'll do. So the Holy Spirit can do it. And that's what the believer believes. The Holy Spirit can do it. And so I just pray that you take this to heart. I pray that you will study the book of Hebrews. I pray that you will see the context of the book is that he begins by the two that are speaking and he concludes with the two that are speaking and how important it is to hear Jesus and begin to understand when you come into Hebrews chapter 10, you're coming to the transition and the conclusion of his argument. And that is this. We have a covenant that's been established through God's son 
the blood of that son and the spirit of grace if we willfully sin against that and say this covenant's not enough there is no more sacrifice for sin there's no mercy anywhere else if 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 we reject the new covenant where are we going to go for the forgiveness of our sins what blood are we going to turn to what god is going to save us what god is going to transform us so don't throw your confidence away keep your faith solidly in the lord Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus this morning for your favor and your grace towards us. I thank you for your kindness and your mercy, your goodness, your righteousness. I thank you, Lord, for the Holy Ghost and the ability to live the righteousness of the law. Not out of compulsion, not out of a form of godliness but out of a real power of God that's inside of our life that brings freedom and liberty and joy and Father I pray that you will give us such a heart for you a heart to walk after you God that your grace would be precious to us and we wouldn't take it in vain we wouldn't abuse your grace Father, we would welcome the influence and the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit to our life to make us like Jesus. Father, help us, as Jude says, to defend this faith. There are many that would stand against it. Father, help us to see multitudes go free in the name of Jesus.